turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be reading the first four verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the first four verses. Uh, as you're turning there, just remind you, we've been in a series leading up to Easter the past uh, couple weeks and the next one, studying three aspects of the resurrection, specifically the past historical value of the resurrection and what it says about Jesus Christ himself. Today we're going to be looking at the present implications of the resurrection and what it means for us and how we live our lives now. As you can see, uh, our artists have added to uh, the painting behind me with the daisies just gliding over, cascading over the picture, giving us a sense of life. The resurrection means life for us right now at this moment. And I want to uh, take us through 1 Corinthians chapter 15, those first four verses at least, uh, to look at what Paul has to say about this. This is the resurrection celebrating its present implications in our life today. So if you will, let's just read together what Paul says. Now brothers, I want to clarify for you the gospel I proclaim to you. You received it and have taken your stand on it. You are also saved by it, if you hold to the message I proclaim to you, unless you believe for no purpose. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Lord, we want to bring ourselves, ourselves into subjection to you under the authority of your word today, knowing that your word is so good, that in, these, in times prior, as the author of Hebrews says, you've spoken to us in prophets, but in these last days you've spoken to us most clearly in your son. And so we want to subject ourselves to the very words of God today, but I know Personally, Lord, I have a trouble subjecting myself to anybody or anything other than myself. And so for myself and for anyone else in the room that feels the same way, I pray that the Holy Spirit would come manifesting yourself and the glory of God in such a way that every idol, every ounce of our love for self, every preconceived notion, every distraction, every anxious thought would be by the power of the Holy Spirit brought into beautiful subjection to God as our eyes are opened to see the glory of a lamb who is slain, slaughtered for our sins, and rose from the dead. So God, give us a panoramic view of your beauty, of your glory today. Let everything else just fall into the gutter. Let everything else just fall through the filter of your holiness. We just want a beautiful, glad, enjoyable view of Jesus Christ that we might follow you wherever you happen to send us today. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I, uh, I prayerfully chose this text in hopes of steering our hearts my heart and your heart, to celebrate the present implications of the resurrection. 
meaning what does the resurrection have to do with us when we wake up on Sunday, when we wake up on Monday, what does it mean for us right now? I thought it necessary to show how it even connects in the first place to the good news. Why is the gospel? We, we throw around words like the gospel frequently. It's all throughout the scriptures. We speak about the gospel, the power of the gospel, uh, how the gospel is the power of God to save. We know, or perhaps some of you know, uh, some of you may not know, the gospel comes from the word meaning good news. So when we speak of the gospel, we're speaking about an announcement a proclamation of good news as being declared by God. I, wanna, I just want to start off this morning by asking and probing with the questions, why is it good news to begin with? And there's many places throughout the scripture, through Paul, with Jesus, with other apostles, with prophets, with the whole panoramic scope of scripture that we could go to to figure out and to explain what is so good about the gospel, but none as elementary and as simple as Paul as he speaks forth to the Corinthians. In fact, he lays it out as simply as possible, his intent right there in verse 1. Brothers, I want to clarify for you the gospel I proclaim to you. You received it, you've taken your stand on it, you're also saved by it. It's that which I passed on to you, the very thing that was important that I also received from other apostles. It's that thing, that body of truth that's been handed down from generation to generation, from the apostles to us and to others as we make disciples, and I'm handing it off to you as the most important thing that you will ever know, the good news of what God has done in your world right now at this moment. And he outlines it in almost two points, as simply as possible, in verse 3. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And there it is right there in a matter of sentences. He died for our sins, he was raised. As Paul would say in Romans chapter 4, he, he died for our trespasses, he was raised for our justification. And so those two things are inseparable. We cannot speak of the death of Jesus Christ without also alluding to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For without the resurrection, he's just a dead man. And we know lots of dead men. Without his death, the resurrection means nothing. And so these two things are inextricably linked, a golden thread that weaves itself through the good news of the gospel of Jesus, that which Paul would say is the very power of God. It's what allows Christians to breathe Christian life, his death and his subsequent resurrection. And in these two, we have this ancient historical story about 2,000 years ago, God steps in on the scene into the busyness, into the mess, into the scandal of human nature, and he rescues them. You might even say he manhandles the rebellion by grace and love and scandalous mercy. And this is how he does it, by a death and a resurrection. And for 2,000 years, we see the entire church revolving around those two things. Now, we do a lot of other stuff. We eat together. We meet together. We fellowship together. We sing together. We listen to the Word of God together. But at the core of all of those things, centered 
is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, our entire worship life is centered around those two things. For example, Christ's death should be in the midst of true preaching. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. He said, yeah, the Jews look for signs, Greeks look for wisdom, we preach a dead, crucified Savior. We preach the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, which is God's power to the Greeks, and it is God's, uh, excuse me, it is God's wisdom to the Greeks, and it is God's power to the Jews. The Lord's Supper, when we break bread and we take of the cup, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, Paul would say, every time that you do that, we do this during the second set of worship, every time you take of the bread and of the juice, Paul says you are proclaiming his death until the day that he comes. Meaning that which has happened thousands of years prior to your moment right now, you are proclaiming its implications in your life until he comes to finish the job. Even things that you would never see as intricately connected to the death of Jesus Christ, like tithing and offerings. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, Paul speaks to the Corinthian church and to the church universal, and he says that we are to bring your tithes and offerings, the collection on the Lord's day, and this is where it's connected to. He says in chapter 8, verse 9, 2 Corinthians, it's because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ who in his riches, in his wealth became poor so that you in your poverty might become rich. He even ties in generosity to the generosity of Christ's death. We see the resurrection just as obvious and just as uh, boisterous as the death of Jesus Christ in the life of the church. We can start with the leadership of the church. Specifically, the head of the church, Jesus Christ. Paul said in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, He, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. Paul is saying Christ is the head of the church, and the resurrection proves it. It validates that. Baptism. Tied in with the death and resurrection of Jesus. Colossians 2 verse 12. You having been buried with Christ in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised Christ from the dead. Even acts of service. Serving one another, whether it's in the church gathered or in the church scattered from Monday to Saturday, even that has as its basis the death and resurrection of Jesus. Paul said to the Philippian church in chapter 2, verse 5 through 11, make your own attitude that of Jesus. What was his attitude? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. There's the crucifixion. But for this reason, God highly exalted him. Resurrection. Even things like mission, whether it's mission in the context of your neighborhood, it's mission on the margins of society, or it's mission to the nations. See in Luke chapter 24, Jesus walking along with the, uh, with the disciples who 
didn't know that he had risen from the dead, and he's walking along with them, holding a Bible study as they're walking along the road to Emmaus. And he, starting from the prophets all the way to the end, begins to tell them how the entire Bible points to him, that the crucifixion and the resurrection had to happen. And then the scriptures, uh, the gospel writer Luke says that at a certain point, their eyes were opened, and they said, weren't our hearts burning within us as he spoke? And Jesus' response is, all of these things had to happen. Luke 24, verse 46. Uh, Suffering, rising from the dead, repentance, forgiveness of sins, proclaiming of of my name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Holy Spirit, uh, of my Father, upon you, the Holy Spirit, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So our basis of mission, the promise of the Holy Spirit, our baptism, why we serve, the the true leadership of the church, giving, generosity, worship through the cup and through the bread, the preaching, everything that we do as an organic community of believers, the body of Christ, is intricately tied to the death and to the resurrection of the Son of God. We can't breathe apart from it. So what's the historical impact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Well, the entire Christian church was breathed out of that moment and exists for that moment and gathers around that moment. Meaning, everything that we do draws back to the day that Jesus rose from the dead. An historical event 2,000 years ago when Christ pulled off his own death and resurrection, died three days later, waltzed out of the tomb like a man, owning death, as the song goes, laying death in his own grave. And this is the center of Christian worship, something that took place thousands of years ago. And this is, this is perhaps countercultural to some of us in this room. Because isn't there a sense in our culture that what is older is perhaps not as good as what is newer? There's a sense of desiring and wanting new things. You can call it progress. You can call it uh, modernity. You can call it whatever you want. The sense that uh, we are putting our hope in something that took place so long ago seems archaic perhaps to some. Outdated, prehistoric, maybe even a little barbaric. We live in an age where newer is better. And for some things, this is actually true, right? I perhaps would personally rather put my hope in medicine from today than maybe a hundred years ago. Certain things are better today because they're newer. We've progressed in our knowledge. We've progressed in our wisdom. We've progressed in our expertise. But some things are simply not better because they're newer. Literature. Some would argue. Can Suzanne Collins really walk up to Scott F. Fitzgerald and say, I am better than you because I am from modernity. I am from the year 2000 whatever. Some things simply get better with age. And while some things are better because they're newer, it's a form of idolatry to sweep everything under the rug of newness. Uh, Writer by the name of Owen Barfield, called this chronological snobbery. He said, chronological snobbery is the presumption fueled by the modern conception of progress 
that all thinking, all art, and all science, etc., of an earlier time are inherently inferior, indeed childlike, or even imbecilic, compared to that of the present. In other words, simply because we have progressed and everything is new means that it is somehow inherently better. And we sometimes, maybe even just practically or functionally, can uh, possibly take that into our own faith. Well, I know that happened thousands of years ago, but what can I do now? What can I bring onto the scene of my own religion to make it fresh, to make it alive, to make it relevant? Paul would argue against that with all of his vigor. But perhaps some of you would carry that even farther and say, it feels like I'm chasing something nostalgic. Is there, isn't there more to the Christian faith than nostalgia? Isn't there more to the Christian faith than fairy tales? It feels, for some of you, like a fairy tale. And you're right. Our faith is worthless if it is a fairy tale. Paul would say, if Christ did not rise from the dead, I believe it's in verse 17, we are of all people the most to be pitied. We are still in our sins. Our faith is worthless because it is attached to nothing. But I want you to notice that even in our love, or at least our culture's love for even something like a fairy tale, it reveals in us a deep longing for something else. G.K. Chesterton once said, fairy tales are more than true, not because they tell us that dragons exist, but because they tell us that dragons can be beaten. Even in our love for novels, in our love for movies, in our love for the fake world of sitcoms and reality shows, in our love for uh, nursery rhymes and in our love for fairy tales, there is revealed in us a deep longing, even if we don't believe, even though we know it's not true, a deep longing for a better ending, for a turn of events, for an entry into another world. In other words, we know something is wrong with the situation we are currently in, and we want to be set free from it. And Paul steps in on the scene on 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and in verse 1 says, the gospel is not a fairy tale, but it is that turn of events that your heart has been longing for since you were four years old. It is that turn of events, that otherworldly occurrence where heaven breaks into our world. And it happens by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How does Christ's resurrection break into your world? When you go into the, when you go into the job place tomorrow morning at 8 in the morning, 9, 7 a.m., what does the resurrection mean for you? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul continues to say Christ has been raised, or if Christ has not been raised, this is true. If, if Christ has been raised, this is true. Every time he says that, the tense that he is using speaks uh, about something that has occurred in the past but has present realities currently. In other words, he's not just speaking about something in the past tense. He's not referring to the resurrection as something nostalgic that happened once upon a time. The tense that he's using is specifically that which happened that is continuing to happen in your life right now. He uses a verb that is rare in the New Testament. I think it's, I think it's used like one or two other times in the rest of the Bible. In this chapter, he uses it six times. 
Paul is saying the resurrection is not nostalgia, nor is it a fairy tale, nor is it even mere history. It is a present reality that every Christian lives in. So how does Christ's resurrection break into our present situation and our world? The Bible seems to testify to three different things. It breaks into your past in the form of justification. It breaks into your present situation in the form of sanctification. And it breaks into your future in the form of glorification. I want to talk about those first two because I'm going to save the last one for next week. Christ's resurrection breaks into your past and present in words that the apostles used to describe as justification and sanctification. Here's what justification means. Justification means God declaring righteous those who were not righteous in and of themselves. It is that moment where God looks at a sinner and declares that person to be in right standing before him due to the death and resurrection of his son. Regardless of anything that you have done, meaning we are scoundrels, sinners, messed up by nature, couldn't do anything to please God to save our lives, which is entirely the point, right? And God looks down on the sinner and declares them to be righteous by grace. He declares us to be justified. Now notice this is an act of God. I, I can't say the word declare without thinking of this episode of The Office from a couple of years ago. For those of you that have never seen The Office before in your lives, it's a sitcom making fun of the mundane uh, nine-to-five job, pushing papers in the office. At the core of the show is a man by the name of Michael Scott, who's this exuberant, fun, laughable, wants to have fun uh, kind of boss who is also very incompetent and naive about everything. And there's this one episode where he's in his office speaking to the HR guy, Toby, and he, he's, just, he's got his head buried, buried in his hands, speaking about his financial debt. I've racked up all of this credit card debt. I don't know what to do. It's overwhelming. And Toby throws out, well, you know, if, if push comes to shove, you can uh, declare bankruptcy and your debt will be, you know, it'll be wiped away. You can start afresh. And His eyes open up really big, and Michael Scott walks immediately out of the office and and walks out into the the bullpen of his office and says to his employers, uh, employees at the top of his voice, "I declare bankruptcy." (laughs) And then he walks back into his office and sits down with a smile on his face. To which Toby replies, "It doesn't really work that way, (laughs) and it doesn't really work that way." You can declare yourself to be a churchgoer and a Christian and holy art thou. And you can even do things that make you feel good about your declaration. You can be a good Christian. You can show up to church. You can serve in church. You can, you can save the entire island of New Guinea for, uh, for whatever it's worth. But it does not save your human soul. There is absolutely nothing that a person can do to save themselves. We are by nature wrought with wickedness and we must be declared by uh, to be holy by someone else and this is exactly what happens Romans chapter 3 verse 23 all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God but listen to this they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus 
God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. Meaning nobody makes the cut, but by his sheer mercy and grace, through the, uh, through the sacrificing death of his son Jesus Christ, he is able to present all those who put their faith in Jesus Christ as righteous and declare them righteous who put their faith in Christ. So contrary to the Michael Scott, deci- uh, the, the Michael Scott situation, none of us declare anything. God looks over us and declares over all who put their faith in him that we are righteous by grace. And he even takes it a step farther. Zephaniah, I believe it was in Zephaniah chapter 3, says that he sings over us songs of deliverance and it just gets better and better and better. So we're not just judicially let off the hook like, okay, I took, a, I took care of your debt, now just stay in the corner and don't break anything in heaven. We enter into the arms of our master who welcomes us with songs of deliverance and joy, quiets our hearts with love. He says to us, well done, good and faithful servant. And he declares over us everything that he believes about his own son. My well-beloved son in whom I am pleased. But he doesn't stop there. See, the resurrection doesn't just transform your past. It transforms your present at this moment. It does that by making you that which God has already declared you to be. He has declared the Christian to be righteous. You say, well, I'm not righteous. I just, I, I just said some things I shouldn't have said in the parking lot on the way to church. How ironic is that? I mess up on a daily basis. I am far from righteous. But, but the scriptures say that because of Christ's righteousness, he declares you to be that which he sees in Christ. So you cannot out the grace of God. You cannot sin so much that he says, you know what, I, 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 I take back you know, the whole cross gift. You have been declared to be perfect even though you're not by practice. But this is where sanctification comes in because he doesn't leave you where he found you. God begins to make you righteous in the same way that he declares you to be also by the power of the resurrection. Romans chapter 6 verse 3 through 5 says this. Are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too, listen to this, so we too may walk in a new way of life. For those of you that will be baptized on Easter morning at the beach, this is what you are declaring to the world. I once was lost, but now I am found. And Christ is forming me in his image by his very own resurrection power. For if we have been joined with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. In other words, the resurrection which happened 2,000 years ago to this day transforms our entire existence. It's what separates the Jesus story from every myth, from every novel, from every fairy tale, from every other story. Is the validating reality and history that Christ walked out of a tomb declaring himself to be everything that he said he was. The finisher and the author of our faith, the forgiver of sins, the the, the justifier of those who put their faith in him. 
in the 15, I believe it was in the 1500s, the ancient uh, catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, beautiful, very similar to the Westminster Catechism, but more personal and more comforting and more pastoral, attempts to answer that question in this way, summarizing question 45, what does the resurrection of Christ profit us? Answer, three things. First, by his resurrection, he hath overcome death, that he might make us partakers of that righteousness which he hath purchased for us by his death, justification. Secondly, we are also by his power raised up to new life, sanctification. And lastly, the resurrection of Christ is a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection, glorification. The resurrection transforms our entire existence unless, as Paul says in verse 2, unless you believed it with no purpose. I want us to ask ourselves what it means to believe in the resurrection with no purpose. Because I don't think there are a lot of Christians in, the church, in, in our church today who would say, yeah, I, don't, I believe in the whole cross thing, but I don't actually think he rose from the dead. Most of us, I think, would ascend to that belief that Christ rose from the dead. But do we ever believe in it without purpose? Perhaps some of you are listening to this. You've heard one too many uh, fairy tale phrases, uh, mystery uh, insinuations, uh, things that smack of romance, and you're just incensed by that because you're a, you're a self-made woman. You're a self-made man. Like, you know what? That may be good for some of the helpless people that kind of need that type of crutch, but I'm, I'm amazing. I've made it for myself. I came out of the miry clay on my own. I made something of my, my life. I'm tough. I'm, I wear Levi's. They're rugged. I roll down a, a 405 with the top down at 90 miles an hour. I'm an entrepreneur. I started my own business. My business started businesses that started businesses that I don't even know exist. And I got so much money I don't know what to do with. And people love me. And I'm on top of the world. I'm physically fit, I'm healthy, I eat good. I've got muscles in places I didn't even know I had places. Muscles are building muscles. So I don't really relate or resonate at all with your guys' you know, language and speak about brokenness and helplessness and all of that stuff because my life actually looks pretty awesome right now. Maybe when it comes crashing down, I'll come knocking on your door, but I'm doing great right now and I don't need that type of savior. My question to you, my brother and sister, Christians and non-believers alike, is what happens when all of those things disappear? Do you feel a sense of desperation and despair when you lose all your money? If your highest pleasure in life is relationships, what happens when those people turn on you? What happens when they disappoint you? If religion is the greatest thing that you have ever known, not Jesus, but the organizational getting together, all of that stuff, if that is, if that is the best thing that has ever happened to you, what happens when church people start to hurt your feelings? Because they will. We're messed up. If you're all about family, if family is the best thing that has ever happened to you in life, what happens when you lose a loved one? What happens when your kids walk away from you? What happens when your family disappoints you? What happens when your marriage hits trouble? 
what happens when you lose your job after you've worked through college and through grad school and worked 90-hour weeks trying to attain that position that's your dream job? What happens when you get laid off? Do you feel a sense of despair? Are you devastated? If you're devastated, it might mean that even though for some of you, you pay lip service to Jesus as your resurrected Savior, your functional Savior is that which you serve on a daily basis. And so even the Christian can say, I believe that Christ rose from the dead, but my resurrection power comes from my income. My resurrection power comes from my job. My resurrection power comes from my kids making it successful and making me proud. My resurrection power comes from my status. My resurrection power comes from my circle of friends. My resurrection power comes from this and that and this and the other. And when those things are taken away, you can tell that you have made those very good things into an ultimate thing and then an idol because when it's taken away, it stings you to the very core of who you are. You have replaced God with something else. And non-believer and Christian alike can all fall to the same temptation to say, yes, I believe certain things about Jesus that are true, but functionally, I live with my hope and security in what I have built, that which I have raised from the dead myself. When Paul says, this is the gospel I proclaim to you that you are now being saved by unless you believe for no purpose. He explains the gospel. And then in verses 12 through 19, he actually explains what it means to have a resurrection with no purpose. He says, you don't actually believe Jesus died. He might be speaking to people that are spiritualizing the resurrection. You, you maybe think it's a spiritual resurrection, not bodily. Well, your faith is worthless if that's true. He might say to some of us, you may call Christ your Lord and Savior. You might believe that he rose from the dead intellectually, but you show by the condition, of, you show by the actual worship of your life that your heart has not wrapped itself around his resurrection. It is not a present living reality for you now because your hope is in this person. Your hope is in that thing, in this concept. And so whether you're a tough barbarian that has made it by pulling up your own bootstraps or whether you're a swooning romantic or whether your life is just shambles, all of us are extremely helpless alike. And it's when we begin to recognize and see that we are extremely helpless that the gospel begins to taste like honey on our lips. Because Paul would say in Romans chapter 5 or 6, while we were still helpless, at the appointed moment, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person. Though for a good person, someone might even dare to die for someone that's good. But God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, we will be saved through him from wrath. 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Meaning the death had implica- his death had implications for the forgiveness of your sins, but his resurrection has even deeper implications. You live this life by his resurrected life. What does this mean except that we are brought into union with a resurrected living God? That he doesn't just impute, although he imputes righteousness to you, he declares righteousness to you, that is not all he does. He brings you, he subsumes you with himself, he wraps you into himself, he takes your identity, he strips off the old one like just corn on the cob, just shucking the, just, the, just the dead pieces, and he takes over. And he brings you into union and participation with himself so that you are no longer living in the deadness of your old life. You are living in the resurrected power of Jesus, the Son of God. That when Christ walks, we walk. When Christ runs, we run in the same direction. When Christ has vision, we see the same vision. When Christ weeps for the broken, we weep for the broken too. And when Christ celebrates, we party, man. Seventy-three times, only in the letters of Paul, does he say we are in Christ. Not beside him, studying and taking notes, in Christ. Participating in what? In his death and his resurrection. That is the craziest thought in the world. We are participating in the death of Jesus. You know what that means? It means we die to ourselves. But we're also participating in the resurrection of Christ. You know what that means? You are raised to a better life. One day in physical body and now in spirit and in soul. Paul would say to the Galatians in chapter 2 verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. When he was nailed to the cross, I was in a very real way nailed there with him. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ lives in me, and the life, I love this line, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So you say, oh, you know what? I put my faith in Christ, but I struggle on a daily basis. I can't even get myself to church in the morning because I am so ashamed of what I did on Saturday. I am so ashamed of my thought pattern. I am so ashamed of my addictions. I am so ashamed of my stumbling. And I come in on Sunday, I see all of these pretty faces raising their hands. I see perfect people, perfect people everywhere. It's a perfect people place. And I am so imperfect and I am ashamed of myself. But Christ says, the life you live right now in your shame is being subsumed in union with Christ who knows no shame. And your ridicule, your shame, your torment is being shocked like a corn on the cob so that Christ can take over. And there is now no condemnation to those who are believers in him. I have been crucified with Christ. That's not you anymore. You say you were addicted to drugs. That's not you anymore. You say you were addicted to porn. That's not you anymore. You say you had this anger problem. That's not you anymore either. You say you have this problem with uh, relationships. You just seem to ruin them all. That ain't you anymore either. 
You say, well, that's really, that's really romantic to really declare to me, but tomorrow I'm going to do the same thing again. Yeah, but Christ declaring you to be righteous is now making you to be that which he declared you to be. And you know what he tells you to do? He doesn't say, you know what, I did my part, now you got to do your part. I did the whole cross thing, which was awesome. Now you gotta, you know, you got to catch up a little bit. That was kind of a big deal what I did. He doesn't say, you know what, I tried hard, now you got to try hard. He doesn't say, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. He doesn't say, be a better Christian. Stop screwing up. But he does call us to holiness, doesn't he? But how does he do that? By faith in the Son of God. Faith is not a work. Faith is sheer trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And yes, we are called to live righteously and holy. But that happens when the Christian who has been so blown away by the grace of God all of a sudden says, oh my goodness, there is no other life to live than to follow after the glorious Son of God. Save me. To live by faith means to rest and to abide in the finished work of the cross and resurrection. That means when I am struggling with my own sin, I look back to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and I say, you have declared over me that which I am not and you are making me to be that which you want me to be. It's all by grace and we experience that through faith. And you'll begin to notice that as you cling to the finished work of the cross, as you abide in union with Christ, that he will begin to change you. You'll wake up one morning with a greater dose of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. You'll start to notice that you are more loving than you were last year. You're more joyful than you were last year. And the, the process continues and like that asymptote line that is always approaching that plane, getting closer and closer, but never actually reaching that line, we are getting closer and closer and closer and closer and closer to glory until Christ himself, the plane, the line, steps in. And as, as the Apostle John declares, once you see him face to face, you will become as he is. And that's to be your experience in this life. Glory to glory. And this happens not because we declare over ourselves to be glorious, but we declare Christ to be glorious. He makes much of himself in the brokenness of our lives and our pieces, and he picks up those pieces. He glues them together by grace, and he makes a name for himself in the mess. Do you have a mess? I'm the biggest mess I've ever known. And God loves to brag about his grace in the midst of our weakness. So if there's anything that you endeavor to bring to the table this morning, don't bring your strengths and your talents and your resume. Bring your weakness and watch the power of God fall upon you and change you by the power of the Holy Spirit. I love the promise that Jesus gives us over even than the apostles. When in John chapter 20, and I close with this passage, Thomas, who was doubting, said, I will not believe that he rose from the dead until I can feel it. I can put my finger in his wounds and feel the wound in his side with my very own hands. And Jesus seemingly walks through the wall and encounters Thomas. 
himself and says, Thomas, put your finger here and observe my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be an unbeliever, but be a believer. And Thomas responds in the way all of us should respond when we believe that Jesus rose from the dead. He replied, my Lord and my God. But this is what Jesus replies. He says, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. But those who believe without seeing are blessed. Do you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins and rose again? And do you believe that it has powerful implications for how you live your life now? Blessed are you. And you will encounter that blessing as the Holy Spirit of God begins to bring you into union with the Son of God. You will be able to enjoy Him even in the midst of suffering and trial. By His grace, through our faith, for His glory, and for the good of humanity. If that's what you want this morning, let's throw ourselves at the foot of the cross and worship not a dead Savior, but a risen one. Amen? Heavenly Father, we gather here today knowing that you died for our sins, but knowing also that you did not remain in the tomb. And as the angels would say to the women at the tomb, I know you're here looking for a crucified Savior, but he ain't here. He is risen. Go meet him. Christ, may we, if we may be so bold, come to you this morning and say the same. We believe that you are risen, that you are presently active at the right hand of the Father, ministering among us by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And we would say simply, even childishly, we just want to meet you today, Lord. And so I pray over this family, myself, my brothers and sisters, alike that God you would manifest the glorious power of the resurrection in this place today that our sickness would be healed by his stripes we have been healed that our our mental and spiritual torment would be set free that our chains would be broken that our wounds would be healed that our thirst would be satiated that our hunger would be filled that our eyes would see, that the lost would be found, that in this little place on the coastland of California, the light of the glory of God would shine brightly in the face of Jesus Christ. So Holy Spirit, make much of Jesus Christ this morning. Brag about a resurrected Savior today, even as we sing of him by faith. I pray that you would put him on display, that we might see and fall more in love, and as a result, follow him wherever he sends us to go. You're the glorious one. So put your glory on display, that we might worship you, our Lord and our God. In Jesus' name, amen.